All right, we're in Leviticus chapter 23. Third book in your Bible, Leviticus. You got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We're in chapter 23. Tells us all about the biblical feast of Israel. I've tried to serve you by putting a table on the screen. Uh, some of you are visual. Uh, probably most of you are visual learners. And I find this, this, this works for my brain. I hope it helps you out. So we've been talking about the biblical feast of Israel. There's seven in total. Uh, they're divided up by the ones already fulfilled. The top four have already been fulfilled in Christ's first coming. That's the spring feast. And there's three feasts yet to come. You'll see on the right side of the screen there. Those are the fall feasts. Uh, they have not been fulfilled yet, but they will be in the future at some point. So you'll see the names of the feasts there on the left side. Uh, of course, most of those have multiple names, which might be confusing. But you'll notice uh, one of the things we've learned in the feast is that on a one-day feast, we, we see, at least in Christ's first coming, the one-day feasts were fulfilled in a, in a one-day event, whereas some of the feasts are, are multiple days, uh, some of them even a whole week long, and those things we see fulfilled in, a, in some sort of an age. So, for example, uh, speaking of age, you'll see the, uh, the Feast of, of, of Weeks, or uh, Pentecost is another name for that. Uh, of course, that was fulfilled in a longer period of time when Christ sent the Holy Spirit. So notice, uh, you'll, you'll see the meaning of what, what is it all pointing to. Of course, it's all pointing to Christ. So Christ is his death, his burial, his resurrection. And then Christ said, I'm going to send you the Comforter. And he did that uh, 50 days after his ascension. So those were, uh, notice, all fulfilled in Christ's first coming. The fall feast will be fulfilled in Christ's second coming. I hope that uh, little thing serves you well and helps you out. If you don't understand it, please talk to me later. So last time we got into the uh, some of the fall feasts, we, we started talking about trumpets and Day of Atonement. And there's some uh, great stuff going on there. By the way, if you want to know what a, a ram's horn is like or a shofar, you can talk to Paul. He has one. So I tried blowing it. It was quite difficult, but... Uh, you can look. You, if you want to know what it sounds like, I was looking on YouTube last night trying to f look look at very so-called experts trying to blow the shofar and what what that sounds like and what that's like. You can go to YouTube. You might find that helpful. But there's uh, the Day of Atonement had had a purpose. So let's talk about the future view of the Day of Atonement. First of all, you need to understand there was no uh, no single event here similar to the death or resurrection of Jesus Christ or, or even the coming of the Holy Spirit that occurred on the Day of Atonement, at least in the first century A.D. Therefore, it seems to confirm this fact that there's a, a gap going on here between the feasts. And, and even in the Jewish calendar, there's there's several months gap between the spring feast and the fall feast. So some people think, well, this is the time of the Gentiles or the time of the church taking place in that gap where Gentiles are being added to the church. The book of Romans makes it clear that Israel is experiencing, a, 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 during this time that we're in right now, is experiencing a temporary blindness until Christ is done building his church. Now notice I I didn't say that the church has replaced Israel. I'm not saying that God is totally done with Israel. The Bible describes it only as something that's temporary. It is not permanent. In fact, Romans chapter 11 here, verse 25, look what it says. It says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel. When's that going to finish? until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And if you want to know more about the time of the Gentiles and how long that is, where, when did it start, when's it going to end, read the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 will give you more information on the time of the Gentiles. We are currently in that time period. And so, following the time of the Gentiles... All that's going to be left of, of, of Israel, the Bible says, 
whatever is left of them after the tribulation will be saved. There's a few other passages that talk about this. Uh, For example, the prophet Zechariah, again on the screen here for you, chapter 3, verse 9 says this, For behold, on the stone I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land. Notice how long? In a single day. Christ comes back, that's when he's going to do that. And then later on, the the prophet Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 1, here's what he says. It's on the screen for you. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They, that's Israel, will call upon my name and will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Oh, that's good news. Because Israel on the whole is not doing that today. They're not currently doing that on the whole. Praise God, there are some who are true believers, but many do not recognize and have not recognized Jesus as their Messiah. But uh, we, we, know, we know they're going to do this in the future. Romans eleven twenty five. 25, again, in that context, uh, let me give you the greater context about the partial hardening and what's going to happen to Israel here. Romans eleven twenty five says this, Lest you be wise in your own conceit, own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. What's the mystery? Well, there's this partial hardening that's come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written. Notice a quote from the Old Testament here. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Wow. Good news. Good news for Israel. God is not done with Israel, clearly. So what event will fulfill this feast? What event will... Again, we're talking about stuff that's going to happen in the future. The the fall feast haven't been fulfilled yet. So... I wish I could be really dogmatic here, but uh, it's, it's, it's unknown exactly what event will fulfill the feast. Now, many premillennialists, and premillennialists is just somebody, someone who believes that Christ is going to come back before the millennium, but uh, many premillennialists have associated the feast with Israel's salvation mentioned here in Romans chapter 11. Now, it's unknown what will cause this national conversion. Romans didn't say exactly. Uh, I I think it's certainly connected to the second coming of Christ. When they see Christ for who He is, they're going to recognize Him. That's good news. So that's great. That's all associated with the Day of Atonement. It's It's a day of salvation, particularly for Israel. And then you come to the last feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll see a, a picture uh, there. Well, that's um, kind of the Israel's calendar with the feast on there and, and a few other things you'll, you'll see. They, notice they have different names. Okay, so Hopefully that doesn't confuse you too much, but let's talk about this particular feast, the last of all these seven feasts, the last one in the fall feast. So it's mentioned here in uh, Leviticus chapter 23. Look at verse 33. Verse 33. Now in my Bible, it has a title called the Feast of Booths. I didn't say booze with a Z. Uh, Booths. It's hard to say. Or tabernacles. That's why I prefer tabernacles. It's easier to say. But uh, anyway, here's what it says in verse 33. 
It says, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying, on the 15th day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, to the Lord. The first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. And the seventh, or eighth day, sorry, you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your uh, your, your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. You shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feast of the Lord. Well, there you go. There's the last of the biblical feast of Israel. Uh, there is more information on the, these feasts, by the way. You can go to the book of Numbers, book of Exodus, to, to find more information. You can see if you have a Bible with cross-references, you might be uh, sometime, maybe this week, you might want to go back and read a little bit more to kind of maybe fill in some gaps you might have. But uh, you should have noticed as we're reading here, this is a week-long feast uh, for Israel. It's Tishri 15 through 22. Pardon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this is a big feast uh, in in Israel. Sorry, I didn't hear you. This fan's really noisy to me from the projector. So uh, a really big feast. They do still celebrate it. Uh, I, I don't know if all of them do, but but certainly the Orthodox ones would. I'm not sure what the the secular Israelites would do, but. Uh, notice there's there's different names even in this chapter it has uh, the name of booths but uh, the uh, many many Israelis call it Sukkoth. Uh, what it, that means is it's, it's an in gathering. Some call it tabernacles. Tabernacles just comes from. You say, well, how did we get that? Well, it actually comes from the Latin Vulgate translation, uh, and is best known in non-Jewish circles. The word tabernacles is a transliteration coming from the Latin word, which is very similar in English. So the term booths comes from the Hebrew word sukkoth. And so you're wondering, well, where does uh, the word ingathering come from? Feast of ingathering is actually used in Exodus chapter 23, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 16. And what it refers to is this ingathering of crops. So it was fall feast, time of the harvest, bringing in the crops, celebrating what God's provision and all the reaping that was taking place during the fall harvest. It's to be a, a season of joy, a season of rejoicing. It was Israel's most beloved feast. And so when the Jewish people said they were going to celebrate the feast... Everybody knew they were referring to the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkoth. You say, well, okay, let me explain this a bit further. Why is it called the, the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths? Well, 
as it was describing here in Leviticus 23, that's because for a week, seven days, they were living in a three-sided booth. Notice, did you notice what it was made out of? Well, you'll see in this painting here, it was, uh, as the Bible describes here, for it was made out of branches from trees, particularly the willow, the myrtle, and palm branches. And they would live in this. If you go to Google Images, you can find real pictures from Israel of, of what they look like today. But it had a purpose. Like a lot of things God told Israel to do and why he tells us to do, they, they, had, they do have a purpose. What's the purpose? Well, the booths were a yearly reminder of what God had did for Israel. Uh, particularly looking back to the Exodus, and when Israel was wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, God protected them. He took care of them during the wilderness wanderings. And according to Deuteronomy 16, all people were invited to celebrate, all the native Israelis, that is. And so their joy here is linked with the anticipated reign of the Messiah. And so this can be seen, by the way, if you read Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Those are called the Hallel Psalms. Notice Hallel is short, shorter version of Hallelujah. Yah is Yahweh or, or Jehovah. So Hallel is praise. So whenever you say the word Hallelujah, you're saying praise to God or praise to Yahweh. And so the Israelis... Uh, they, they would sing or, or read these psalms together, uh, 100, Psalm 113 to 18. They were sung during this feast. Though the whole halal is chanted at all the great festivals, the Hosanna verses in particular were especially associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you read those, I encourage you to read them all together. But uh, when you do... There's parts of it particularly pointing to Messiah's coming reign. And what did they do during the feast? What did they do during the week? Well, notice there were a lot of offerings that were to be made during this time period. In fact, Israel offered 182 sacrifices. That's coming from Numbers chapter 29. That's a lot of sacrificing. Why so many sacrifices? Well, 70 of the sacrifices were bulls which were offered for the, uh, the other heathen nations around Israel. And you say, well, why did they do that? What, they're offering sacrifices for all the unbelievers and their nations around them. Some people find that strange. But the, uh, the feast point to the millennial reign of Christ when he's going to rule over all the nations of the world. The Bible says Christ is going to come back. He's going to rule in Jerusalem for 1,000 years. And they're all... All nations, the Bible says, will come and worship Christ. You'll see a PowerPoint slide here of the Jews celebrating uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, traditionally, notice, um, notice what they're holding in the picture there. Traditionally, Israel bound the palm, the myrtle, and the willow branches together, and they would hold it in their right hand. Now, on the left hand, they would hold a citrus fruit. And every day during the feast, the, the family would gather, and then they would march around their, their Sukkoth booth one time while they waved their branches. And on the seventh day, they would march around their, their booth or, or their little tabernacle. They would march around it seven times. Does this sound familiar? Because that's exactly what... God had told Israel to do to the first city that they came to in the promised land, the city of Jericho, right? So the branches and the fruit were uh, also, by the way, it's interesting that tradition tells us they were waved in six directions. So not just north, south, east, west, but they would do it up and down. You say, What's all this pomp and ceremony about? Well, it was reminding the celebrant that God is everywhere. So, so Easterners, uh, you need to understand something about Easterners. They, they typically do all these um, symbolic things to remind them of past events. 
This was reminding him that God is everywhere. He's north, he's south, he's east, he's west, he's up, he's down. There's nowhere that God is not. But there was an eighth day that's associated with this feast, and many call it Azaret. It's a solemn day that would close the feast of Israel. So that's just some of the things I've learned about the, the Feast of Tabernacles. But the feast celebrated, what was, what was this like? Well, let me give you a little bit more information about it, even during the time of Christ. So this is interesting, because there were two events that uh, I, I particularly want to focus on. This is, I find this interesting. hope you do too as well. But there was um, during the time of Christ, there was the lighting of something going on in the temple. And then they had another ceremony called the Ceremony of Water. And so the, the feast began with the lighting of a giant menorah. If you're not sure what a menorah is, I put a picture of or a painting of a menorah on the, on the screen there for you. It was just a, a lampstand. Uh, there was one in the temple. They had one in the tabernacle as well. And so as it grew dark, they would have a flute player that would lead a procession of priests and rulers up to the temple. It was a very festive parade. They would have, try to picture this, there would be torches, and I don't mean the electrical kind with batteries, but they would have these torches and they would have jugglers and it would be a great celebration and people would fill the streets in the courtyards of the temple and watch this great parade and the lighting of the golden candelabra. Now listen to this, because it was on one of the feast day. On one of those feast day in uh, John chapter 8, when Jesus comes along and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus would often say and do stuff on these particular days, highlighting who he is. That's in John 8 verse 12. Now, in this context here, it's interesting, Jesus is also the fulfillment of one of Isaiah's prophecies coming from chapter 60. Isaiah 60, verse 1 says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come. I hope you start to see this connection with the light and how that points to Jesus. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So that's what the prophet Isaiah said about the coming Messiah. Now, why did they celebrate the lighting of the candelabra? Well, I've given you another painting of a cloud. Hopefully you know the story of how God led Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. God used a cloud during the day, and there was a pillar of fire at nighttime. And the event reminded Israel of God's protection in the wilderness. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 13. So God was guiding them. He was leading them. He was their leader. Does the event have anything to do with Christ? Well, hopefully you're starting to get the picture here, but of course it does. It's, it's pointing to Christ in some way. In this, in this case, the Feast of Tabernacles is for pointing, because it's a week-long feast, remember, it has to refer to an age. So what age could there be that has something to do with Christ. The only thing I can think of is the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. That's what I think it's pointing to, the future millennial reign. Of course, the prophets talked about this coming time period. For example, the prophet Zechariah, chapter 14 here, look what he says. In verse 6, 14 verse 6, it says this, On that day... There shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. 
But at evening time there shall be light. Read the greater context. It might be helpful to understand what's going on there. But um, remember I mentioned there was also the ceremony of water. So every morning at sunrise, all this merrymaking would turn into the solemn chanting of 15 songs of what some call the songs of degrees, starting in Psalm 20, going all the way to Psalm 134. From the steps of the women's court, a choir and an orchestra of Levites would lead the congregation in song. I kind of wish I could have could could be there and uh, and and partake in this. It would be wonderful. Maybe maybe in the millennium we'll get to do this. But uh, following the singing, the congregation would be led in responsive readings from Psalm 135 and Psalm 136. And this would continue until morning was announced by the shofar blowing, the, the, the trumpet blowing, what, they, what their trumpet was. Appointed priests would gather twigs to be set around the altar. Another procession would lead them to the pool of Shalom, where they would uh, draw water into a golden vessel for the water sacrifice. They would return to the temple make a circular procession around the altar, praying a prayer that came to be known as Hosannas. You say, well, what is Hosannas? That was a prayer for God's blessing. And and by the way, ending each phrase of the prayer with the word Hosanna, which just means please save or save now. Then they would march around the altar one time for the first six days of the feast, And then on the seventh day, they marched around it seven times. And of course, that was reminding the people and everybody that might be associated with the feast here of what had happened in the past. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16, again, that same context there. It says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booze or tabernacles. So they're going to keep doing this for 1,000 years during the millennium. And then the priest would pour the water on the altar while the, the morning sacrifice was offered. And then on the last day of the feast of tabernacles, well, here's what Jesus says in John chapter 7. Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. So again, notice Jesus would often say things and do things. He celebrated the feast of Israel. Now this, this prophecy will have a literal fulfillment when Israel, who by the way currently, as you know, is very spiritually dry, uh, will have their spiritual needs met in Jesus Christ. Prophet Isaiah in chapter 35 predicted this, and and look what he says here, chapter 35, verse 36. Chapter 35, verse 30, sorry, chapter 35, verse 67. Isaiah says this, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Chapter 35, verse 67 says this, carrying on, For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Now, I don't think any of us have been to, to Israel, but that's not how Israel currently is. So there has to be a time in the future when Israel is going to be vastly different than it currently is. It's going to be a very productive place. Uh, The prophet Zechariah also talks about how even the topography and, and the animals and lots of things are going to be quite different in Israel. Look at this one, because Zechariah 14, verse 8. 
predicted this when it said, On that day, living water shall flow from Jerusalem. There's going to be a river coming out of Jerusalem. Look at this. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Well, that's not currently happening in Jerusalem. Uh, But one day it will, during the millennium. There are some great themes that we can learn from the feast. Let me just share a few things with you. Hopefully these are encouraging to you because we're not Israel, and so you might say, well, what does this have to do with me? What, What can I learn from this? Here's some great themes to learn. Number one, that God is our shelter. God is our shelter. Just imagine if you were an Israeli, every year you get to build this, this temporary booth made out of just branches from trees of various kinds. And of course, those wouldn't last very long, like your Christmas tree. If you're, if you're, if you're one of those people who goes out and, and you cut a tree down and you put it up in your house, you know, you know by, by maybe even before Christmas time that that poor little tree is, is starting to die and maybe even already did. Right. Well, guess what? That was happening with their booth. And they're living in that thing, and they're celebrating, walking around and doing all their stuff. And it, it was a visual reminder that they need someone bigger and better and greater than this pathetic little booth. <laughs> we don't typically have these kind of reminders, but I know my, uh, my Islander friends are often reminded of this. My Islander friends, every time I go to places like the Solomon Islands or Vanuatu, they often get their their little huts blown away. <laughs> and they often, if they're not blown away by a hurricane, they often get the reminder because often their little huts are made out of banana leaves. And of course, those things don't last forever either, and they have to go and cut down some more banana leaves and replace them. And they, they get reminded that they need a God who is their shelter. Well, we need to be reminded of that somehow, some way. God is our shelter. He is our, our rock, our fortress. Psalms, just some of the things that Psalm reminds us of. Praise God, that's who He is. You can rest in Him and find that He is trustworthy. And when the, the storms of life come your way, you have someone who is your shelter. A second theme to learn from this is that Christ is the living water and our spiritual thirst cannot be quenched with anything other than Jesus Himself. Jesus says in John 4, verse 14, again, here's what He says, Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. My friend, drink of him, and you'll never thirst again. He's going to satisfy once and for all. He gives eternal life. That's why you'll never need to drink again. A sec- a third, sorry, a third theme is that Christ is the light of the world. Right? Remember, Israel had to go light that menorah? candelabra. And so Jesus says in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Darkness is a terrible place to live permanently. You don't want to be there forever, but of course Jesus, spiritually speaking, gives light to a dark world. That's good news. A fourth theme is that Christ is preparing for us a permanent home. Those tabernacles and and, and booths were not meant to be permanent. It was reminding them of someone who is permanent, something that is permanent. They needed something permanent. And so in John 14, Jesus says, there is a home that He's preparing for all believers. And so in John 14, too, here's what Jesus says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. 
So my friends, in the new Jerusalem, the capital city of heaven, is a room for you. A big room. Don't, don't just think little. It's going to be massive. It's going to be way bigger than the house you currently live in. Way bigger. Far better. Superior. Made by Jesus himself. Well, these feasts are going to be fulfilled in the future, some way, somehow, with Jesus' second coming. So let's talk about the future fulfillment, particularly of the Feast of Tabernacles. Bible prophecy tells us that after Christ returns at the end of the tribulation for the, for the battle of Armageddon there, people from the nations of the world will come and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with the Hebrew people right there in Jerusalem. They're going to do this during the millennium. I'm going to get to do this. I want to go to Jerusalem. I've always wanted to go to Israel. I would love to do it before the millennium. But you don't have to spend all that money now because the Bible says you're going to get to do it. If you're a believer, you're going to get to do it during the millennium. You say, where is that in the Bible? Again, look at the prophet Zechariah. I want you to put your eyeballs on, on the page here. And if you don't know where the prophet Zechariah is located, just keep going back toward the end of the prophets. He's in that minor prophet section of your Bible. So go past the, the major ones like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Keep going past Ezekiel. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, chapter 14. Look at this. This is awesome. This is so amazing. You've got to put your eyeballs on the page here, guys. I love this passage. Zechariah chapter 14. Look what the millennium is described like for us here. The thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Zechariah 14, verse 1 says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. That's the battle of Armageddon, by the way. But when Jesus comes back, look at what verse 4 says. What's going to happen when he comes back? On that day, Jesus' feet there, look what it says, are going to stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall be shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and His name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot 
while they are still standing on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of another. And even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beast may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives, that survives the battle of Armageddon, everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year for a thousand years. That's my addition. For a thousand years, they're going to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booze. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to Yahweh. In other words, they're set apart. They're, they are, these horses are unique. They're distinct from all the other horses. And notice it's not just the horses. Verse 20 talks about the pots in the house of Yahweh shall be as the bulls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Oh, can't wait. That'll be a great day. It'll be a great day. And so Jesus Christ is the tabernacle. He is the dwelling place of God. In Him, the Bible says, dwells the fullness of God, and God dwells in our midst through Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so it may be that Christ will ultimately fulfill here the Feast of Tabernacles at His second coming. I pray He does. And then for all eternity, the Bible tells us there's going to be a literal rest for the whole earth and, and a literal rest for all the inhabitants of the earth. If you look at Revelation 19, it talks about this. Of course, Revelation 19 talks about Christ's coming, His second coming back to the earth. So look what it says about Christ's second coming and leading up to the thousand-year reign of Christ in chapter 20. So look at Revelation 19. So when Christ comes back, here's what's going to happen. God tells you, this is great. Look at this. Those of you who like horses, you're going to like this. And by the way, even if you don't like horses, you're still going to like this. But Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it, by the way, this is Jesus. Notice he's called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven. That's Christians. Look what happens with the Christians. The armies of heaven. They're arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We're following Him on white horses. Great! One day I'm going to be a horse rider. Can't wait. Verse 15. From His mouth, that's Jesus' mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who is in its presence, had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two, talking about the Antichrist and the false prophet, those two, it says, were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So chapter 19 ends the battle of Armageddon. Then we come into the millennium, chapter 20. Look what happens here in chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon. Who's the dragon? that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with Him for a thousand years. Amen. Amen. So these full festivals are speaking here of a future time when people again are going to Dwell with Christ. Dwell with God. He's going to dwell with them. They're going to dwell with Him. Perfect harmony. Perfect peace. Because look what Revelation 21 says. Revelation 21 verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. Wow. I have often admired Adam before he sinned. (laughs) Wish I could be like Adam and walk with God in the garden and talk with God just as Adam used to do. But guess what, my friends? After God removes your sin nature... You'll get to do that. You'll get to do that. Paradise will be restored. What good news. So I ask you, my friends, where are your affections? Where are your affections? Because Colossians chapter 3 warns us about where our heart is. Where are our emotions, our affections? Are they set on things here on earth? See, Colossians chapter 3 says, don't, don't set your affections on things here on the earth, but to set your affections on things above, where eternity is, where God is, Jesus is. 
that's where our affections are to be. And this is so important that we remind ourselves of, of heaven, of eternity, of, of Jesus. See, God cares about where your heart is. You know why He cares? Jesus put it this way. Jesus says in, in, I think it's in Matthew 6, isn't it? Where He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure? Where, where's your affection set? Your treasure is whatever your affections are set on. Because God cares about your heart. See, He wants you to love Him with all of your heart, all your soul, all your might, all your strength. So that's why he cares about your heart. So my friend, take your affections off yourself, which is basically idolatry, isn't it? Set your, your, your love, your affections on him. Look to him. Look to your eternity as a believer in Christ. There's nothing greater, nothing better. See, while we live on this earth our affections can be drawn away from Christ. That's, that's the continual danger. And so you just gotta, you got to keep looking to Christ. Keep looking to Christ. Don't take your eyes off Him. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we as believers have an eternal home. We have a special room being prepared or already prepared for every believer. And we get to dwell with You forever without our sin natures. The paradise restored. And it's going to keep lasting and going on forever and ever, never ending, perfect paradise. What so many people long for will never attain on this earth. All Christians will gain one day. So may that be where our affections are. May that be where our heart is. Or may, our, may we find our treasure not on this earth, but ultimately in You. Forgive us for being so easily satisfied, if you will, in things of this earth, in the, in the temporary things that could never satisfy us anyway, but forgive us. May we see that as sin. May we see that as idolatry. So may we be, be able to obey the greatest command of all, which is to love you with all. And to love people. The second command, love people as we love ourselves. So may we worship you every day until this glorious day. When we are glorified, we get to live with you and serve you. May that be our treasure. May that be our heart. Change our heart changes, transform us, where we get to see a little bit of eternity here and what is to come, and may that be our great treasure. In Jesus' name we pray.